June 14th, 2015. June 14th, 2015. Anybody know where they were? No, you don't. June 14th, 2015, the Cleveland Cavaliers had just lost game five of the National Basketball Association Championship Finals to the Golden State Warriors in Oakland. After the game, LeBron was asked, it seemed inevitable that this undermanned Cleveland Cavaliers team would inevitably lose probably in the next game, and if not that one, for sure the next. It seemed inevitable. And so one reporter asked him, he said, how do you feel about bringing this team, coming home, bringing this team, undermanned, understaffed, under-delivering outside of LeBron, all the way to the finals to lose? And he looks at that reporter and he says, I'm confident because I'm the best player in the world. See, up to this point, what LeBron had done that season, though his age said he should be declining, what he had done to that season was unheard of. What he had done in that playoffs alone, he was passing legends in every statistical category. Wins, games, points, rebounds, assists. He's passing the likes of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and dare I whisper it, Michael Jordan. He's passing those folks while carrying his injured, hampered squad to the finals, doing what nobody thought imaginable, defying physical and common sense. And everybody is loving it. People are going nuts. They're rooting for LeBron to somehow pull this off. But then let that man say with his words, I'm confident because I'm the best. And now everybody's offended. Then all of a sudden people get upset. Oh, he's not the best. How can he say that? How can he make such a statement? He said, I'm the best. What about this person? What about that person? That, that, that impudes upon what I believe. And I don't like that. And now I'm offended. And now I hate LeBron. That's, I don't like that. I don't like that he said he's the best. I don't like that. Even though the physical evidence is stacking up to support his claim that he is the best. When he says it, now all of a sudden everybody's offended. Isn't it funny how we often root for people to defy what we believe to be physically impossible? We cheer for people as they radically shake previously existing external realities. But then let that same person say something that affects what we believe internally and we get offended. This month, We've been going through this series called A Church for the Hungry. I think I stepped on something. Oh, it's back. We've been going through a series called A Church for the Hungry because I believe that that's, that's the prophetic word for Third Street this year, that we are to be a church for the hungry, whether that's physically, spiritually, whatever. We are to be a place that is for the hungry. And we've been going through specifically John 6, and what we've witnessed up to this point is some wild stuff. What we've read about is some wild stuff. 
Jesus takes almost nothing and feeds thousands of people. Cool. Jesus walks on top of water to get to his boys who are in the middle of a storm. Cool. Jesus immediately, magnificently, inexplicably takes a boat that's in the middle of a storm and just by getting on it magically makes it arrive immediately at shore. Cool. But as we read last week, let Jesus go ahead and stand up and say, I am the word. I am eternal life. I am the bread. I am God. Even though we're cool with what he's doing in the physical up to this point, let him say it with his words. Now we're offended. That brings us to our passage this morning. Finishing John chapter 6. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. It is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you go to the New Testament, it'll be the fourth book. We'll skip through the first few chapters. We'll jump right to chapter 6. That'll be big number 6. And you can go ahead and look at the bottom of your page, inevitably, I'm sure, because that is where you will find little number, a.k.a. verse 60. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to read three of those verses together right now. The word of God says this. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. Jesus had just said, I am the bread of life. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot possibly inherit eternal life. This is incredibly hard to understand. How can anyone possibly accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend into heaven again? The people are like, this is so hard to understand. They're on this physical wavelength. They're on this physical mind track. They had just seen Jesus physically multiply food. They had just seen Jesus physically walk on water. They had just watched a boat physically leave the water and arrive on shore. And now let Jesus be metaphorical for a moment, and now we're confused. Like, man, I don't know. Now, see, now you're talking about being a cannibal, and now you're talking about, like, I got to, like, eat you. Like, bro, this, come, come on, man. What, what a couple of days this has been. What a couple of days. Jesus, this is really hard to understand. I'm like really shook by this. Like, like I'm so, I'm so weirded out and offended and hurt. This is so harsh. But what Jesus is about to relay in the following verses is, 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 is the starting point that I want us to have this morning, which is the harshness of Jesus' statement was not in his words. The harshness of Jesus' statement was in the hearts of the people attempting to receive it. Jesus didn't mix it up. Jesus was pretty clear. I would argue he was as clear as it was that he multiplied bread and fish. Jesus didn't mix up his words. He didn't say something accidentally. He didn't go off on a bunny trail like I do sometimes. Jesus was really specific and really clear And the harshness, the hardness was not in the words, but in the people hearing what he was saying. 
the believers just didn't want to hear that. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, oh, 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 you're offended. Oh, you're, oh, you're offended. So, so, so I defied the laws of nature. I defied what the great physiologists and philosophers say is possible by taking a couple pieces of bread that y'all weren't about to eat and like two tiny little fish, I fed thousands of you. We had leftovers. And that was cool. No, 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 no. Let me get this straight. Some of y'all were in the middle of a boat, in the middle of a storm, not sure how you were get to shore. I went ahead and I didn't part the sea like you've heard is possible, but rather I walked on top of the sea to get to you, and that was okay. No, 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 no. Let me get this straight. Y'all pulled me in your boat. I picked that boat up out of the water and it down on shore, and that was okay. But let me imply to you that your understanding of who I am, therefore, your understanding of how you live might be a little off, and that's not okay. I just wanted to be clear. See, the problem here is that the crowd is having a hard time, not because of what he's saying, but because they are judging Jesus' actions and words by their own feelings. I feel okay about the miracle of feeding 5,000 because I ate. I feel okay about you walking on water because you came to get me. I feel okay about you picking that boat up out of that storm and graciously, gently setting it down on shore because I was no longer boat sick. But then you went too far when you turned around and you said and implied that I might not have eternal life. That makes me feel not good. So now I don't like it. So now I'm offended. So now I don't know you, believe you, or want to hang out with you. They're saying I'm cool with you literally phys physically feeding me. I'm cool with you literally physically walking on water. That's cool stuff to, to see. But I'm not cool with you telling me I'm not living right. I want to see miracles, Jesus. But I'm not interested in how the performer of miracles says I should live my life. See, what Jesus intends to do with his words is not to offend. He does not mean to offend you. He doesn't say stuff as many of us often do specifically to get a reaction. But rather he says stuff to expose the unhealthy faith and idolatry people hold within themselves of themselves. And he says things to appeal to the one who is ready and willing to grasp that there is something bigger than our physiological selves. He goes on to say, what happens when you see me ascend into heaven? What happens when you watch me bleed out and die? What happens when you, when you watch me put my cold, dead corpse into the ground? 
But then what happens when you physically watch that cold, dead corpse get up out from underneath that rock and ascend into heaven where I came from originally? Then will you believe? Because then you will physically see what I say with my words will then be physically affirmed. And so then you will believe or will you be offended by that, too? We get offended by words so often, by words. When somebody feeds you, invites you to their house and feeds you, are you offended? When somebody, when somebody defies the odds and common belief, does something wild, are you offended? When somebody carries you through a difficult time, like I'm saying like literally and metaphorically puts you on their back and gets you through something crazy, are you offended? But let somebody tell you about yourself. In church, let's worship. Let's put our hands in the air. Yeah, let's sing and scream and shout and clap about how, God, you're going to carry me through. God, you want to take my burdens. God, you want to take the weight from me. God, you want to heal me. In pretty melody. But let the preacher say one time that you may or may not be living right. And that's the last time I'm going back there. Let the pastor imply that you ain't got it all figured out. That you need to repent. And that the only way to live is by the laws of God, example of Jesus, and prompting of the Holy Ghost... And are you offended? We're okay and open to God performing miracles in our lives. But we refuse for some reason to incorporate his teaching. We love the idea that he will intervene and do something amazing. But we hate the idea that he would tell us how to live. And then have the audacity to say that our life isn't good enough. And that, and that it's not enriched enough. And that it's not fulfilling enough. And that we've got it wrong. But what Jesus is saying in this whole chapter, if you read it all together, it's one big prose. What Jesus is trying to propose to the audience is that you can't have both. You can't, you can't accept Jesus' actions, but then not accept his words. That's not how this works. You cannot believe in Jesus' actions and not believe in who Jesus says he is. That's not the way this works. That brings me to verse 63. Verse 63. It says, the spirit alone, Jesus says, gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Whew, I'll get back to that in a second. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe and he knew who would betray him. One more. Then he said, that's why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. So Jesus steps back and he says, you know what, matter of fact, as long as you're offended... Let me go ahead and make my point even more clear. As long as you're hurt over some words, let me make clear 
that your body and your effort accomplishes nothing. Yeah, I'm hurt. I'm hurt too. For real. Implying that like no deed I can do is good enough. Like implying that like nothing I do in and of myself isn't going to get me there. Jesus says it's the spirit alone that gives life. He says you cannot accept my actions without accepting my words because my words give eternal life. Because my words are from the spirit and my body is only able to do the things you've watched me do because of, guess what? The spirit. So you can't expect, you can't accept and be cool with the way that the spirit uses my body, but then not be okay with the way the spirit uses my words. Because it's the spirit that gives life. Many were living their lives, as many of us still do today, believing that it was their actions, it was the things they could do, it was their deeds that would give them eternal life. That somehow they would get to kingdom heaven's gates and that they would stand before whoever's there and say, look at all the good things that I did. And that would be their ticket in. People have been living their lives the way many politicians, no offense, Nate, live, live their campaign lives. In that they act on things based on this is the type of thing that can get me reelected. You feel me? That's not the way we're called to live. What Jesus is pointing out is simply that you can't credit your own body or your own efforts with life. Because, let's think of it the other way around, isn't it your body that leads you to death? Isn't it your efforts and the things that you inhale, the things that you put in yourself, isn't it your own efforts that lead you to that grave? So how can you tell me that my body or my efforts are good enough when it's your body or your efforts that's putting you six feet under? But some of you, Jesus says, don't believe me. You don't believe me. Many of you here this morning, don't believe me. Which is why Jesus said that I can only do something with those the Father gives me to do. And if we read the verses in the 40s right before this, we'll understand that the Father will only give him those, as earlier stated, who will allow themselves to be drawn in by the Father. We're all walking around like bird box, like we're all going to figure it out with some blindfolds on. And Jesus says, I can't work with that. I can't do nothing with that. But let me get the ones that take the blindfold off and say, God, you got to lead me because I don't know. God, you got to tell me because I don't know. God, you got to teach me because I don't know. Those are the ones that I can work with. In other words, I can do something with those who abandon their grip on their own security of what they know in the physical. In other words, I can do something with those who allow themselves to be taught and guided by the words of God. And to those who make that decision is the promise by Jesus over and over 
that he will not reject you. And that he will do something great in and through you. Imagine, imagine you're on the street and you've got no place to go. Imagine you're hungry. And it's not January or February, so it's not the weather conditions that are going to cost you your life in this case. But it is starvation. Imagine you haven't eaten in so long that your tongue is just dry. Imagine that, that you haven't eaten in so long that your stomach no longer hurts, your body's just weak. And then somebody comes along, kneels down next to you and hands you a sandwich. Our first reaction for many of us will be to wreck that sandwich. But then to exclaim how that sandwich just saved my life. Oh man, that sandwich, whoo, that was right on time. That sandwich saved me. That sandwich got me right. I can get up and do something now because that sandwich, that's, I, my life was almost over, but that sandwich, man. What Jesus is saying, is it the sandwich that saved your life? Or is it the person who made the sandwich? Is it the person who thought of you when putting this remedy together, packaged it in a way that he knew you would receive it, and then sat down next to you and handed it to you with a smile on his face? Is that who saved your life? The body, like the sandwich, is not what will bring about life, redemption, and restoration. Rather, the body, like the sandwich, is the vehicle by which and through which the maker will work out eternal life, redemption, and restoration. In other words, in and of yourself, you can do some things because God has wired your body to be able to do some things. But if you want to have that impact, if you want to really live, and then after your body fails, if you want to keep on living, and if you want to look back into time and see the eternal impact that you made, that's not going to be made with your body. That's going to be made with the spirit within you. The only way that's attainable is by letting go of what you have always been able to attain and understand in and of yourself. And allow yourself to be drawn in by God so that he can reveal to you and give to you the life that comes through the spirit. Last section, 66. says this, at this point, having said all this, many of Jesus' disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12. The 12 who in this case specifically refers to the 12 guys who followed Jesus everywhere. The 12 guys who knew him better than anyone else other than the Father. The 12 guys who had physically witnessed and personally experienced as much of Jesus as was physically allowed. He turns to those 12 and he says, are you going to? Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. He was speaking about Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. What a funny way to end that passage. 
the consequences of Jesus offering the truth amidst the miracle of grace was a whole lot of people alienating themselves, turning and going the other way. The consequence of Jesus saying, if we're going to keep it 100, y'all don't have it figured out. If we're going to keep it all the way real, y'all are missing the mark and you've got to follow me. The consequence of that was people being like, yeah, I can't, I just can't right now, like with him. Like I just can't. I'm cool with his, with the picture of the post, but the caption just got me feeling some type of way and I just got to go the opposite direction right now. I can't. That's the consequence. Jesus sees that his words are not received by a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people prefer their blindfolds because they're afraid of what's out there. And so they just go away. And so Jesus stands there. And what he doesn't do, what he doesn't do is try and convince people to stay. What he doesn't do is turn to the 12 and be like, you guys are okay, right? You guys aren't hurt by what I said, right? How do you guys feel? Like, what is like, what is like your take? Like, let's debrief real quick. Like, like where, where, where should I have said something different? Like, how do you think people felt about, like, like what, like, you know? What he said was, are y'all going to or what? Are you, are you, are you, I mean, you can, you can, you can, if you want to, you can go. Or, or are you good? It's interesting. It's interesting. Isn't it crazy that so many can be so offended by Jesus just saying who he is? I, I like it when you show me who you are because when you show me, I don't have to like all the way accept who you are. I can just be like, oh, he's kind of like LeBron. He does cool stuff sometimes. Because that's probably what they thought. But it's... It's not like Jesus is saying, yeah, I did all that to come and make you my slaves. And I'm going to like rule over you and you're not going to have fun because I'm king and you're not. That's not what he's saying. It's actually an invitation into you don't have it figured out, but like I'll help you. I'll help you figure it out. I can help transform you the way I transformed a little bit of food into a ton of food. I can transform a little bit of your faith into a ton of faith. I can transform a little bit of what you got right into a ton of what you get right. I can turn a little bit of impact into a ton of impact. And then when your body no longer will let you do the things I've asked you to do, I'll take you with me. You don't got to lay in the ground and be worm food, but you can come with me. And yet because we don't want to accept the internal reality of what that means. I'm good, Jesus. I'm good. I wish, ah, I wish, I wish I had more time to get into the fullness of this part right here. But before we go, I want to draw out one thing. I want to highlight two people that were highlighted in this section. So when Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, are you guys going or what? Are you guys going or are you good? Should I, should I keep walking? Should I expect all 12 of you? Should I expect nine of you? What's up? Two people stand out in that passage. 
The first one is Peter. The first one is Peter who stands up and says, where, where would we go? You're clearly, you clearly are who you say you are. I accept and receive your divinity. I like that about you. I'm good with that. Thumbs up, Jesus. And then the second who is highlighted is he's like, yeah, and remember I chose you guys, but I chose one of you who's going to betray me. I chose one of you who's a devil. I know you're a devil, but you can still eat with me for now. That's a whole other sermon for another time. You got room for Judas at your table? No, don't let me go there. There's no time. But he says, you're going to betray me. You know who you are and just keeps on walking. So he highlights Judas. One clearly believes Jesus is who he says he is. One, Jesus implies, does not or doesn't care. But both, when faced with the hard external reality that Jesus is going to die, both turn their backs. Though Peter was the first to stand up and say, you are God. You are the Messiah. You are he who we've been waiting for. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter was also the one that when Jesus was on trial and his fate was inevitable, and somebody said, aren't you that guy? He's like, uh-huh. I don't know him. When faced with it, when faced with it, both of them turned away. Yet we remember Peter so much differently than Judas, don't we? Why is that? See, there's a difference in what happened after that. The reason Jesus didn't rebuke Peter in the moment and the reasons Jesus low-key got at Judas, subtweeted him, is because Peter, ultimately after he denies Jesus, repents. When he physically sees Jesus, he's like, my bad, my bad. And to he who says, my bad, even if you've sworn you don't know Jesus, even if you've sworn you've got nothing to do with that faith or religion because religion's a nasty word and I'm not an evangelical, so don't put me in that category. Even if you've done that. Even if you have stood up in front of crowds of people and said, man, I hate this stuff. I can't do it anymore. To he who says, my bad. To he who says, I got it wrong. I am wrong. I've seen evidence that I always subconsciously knew was true, but now I've seen it, and now I feel bad. To he who says my bad and repents, there's still room to lead one of the fastest growing movements in world history. There's still room for Peter to hold the keys of the church, to be the example of what it means to be a Christian after Jesus' resurrection. There's still room for Peter to do incredible things. But for the one who runs away, we don't hear about him again. This morning, I've done my best in this series to just talk about who Jesus is. And let, let that just sit. But Jesus calls for a decision to be made in this passage. 
Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you in or not? I got room for Peter and Judas. But are you in or not? We have a decision to make. This morning we have a decision to make. The invitation is to repent. The invitation is to put your hand in the air and say, my bad, Jesus. I know I ain't got it right all the time. I know I denied you. I know I didn't, I didn't keep my head on straight. I know there's some things that I got wrong. I like your miracles, but I acknowledge that I haven't let your words actually impact my eternal, internal life. I acknowledge that. I've been dying. I've been coming to Third Street every Sunday, sitting, sitting in the same spot with my arms crossed, just, just waiting to see something cool happen. But I actually haven't, actually haven't let any words spoken impact my life. That's me, and I'm sorry. There's room for that. Or we cannot, which is a decision in and of itself. We can do what Judas did. Sell it all out. I'm all the way out, all the way out. And I'm going to chase money. I'm going to chase whatever my own will and volition is. But what we hear about Judas <laughs> is that he was led to torment. The decision has to be made. Will we repent and accept Jesus' miracles as well as his words? And to do that, that means you let the Spirit have all of your life. That means you let the Spirit do what the Spirit wants to do. You don't tell the Spirit how you want it to work. You let the Spirit tell you how it wants to work. Or we cannot. We can keep chasing whatever we're chasing. But I got to tell you, that's not going to lead you to a whole lot of positive places. My prayer for you is that you have the courage to repent, that you have the courage to swallow your pride and admit that you were wrong, and to accept the invitation that Jesus makes you right. That you can't keep spinning your wheels and keep on trying to get on the right side. That Jesus will catch you right where you're at. However far you feel like you are, he will catch you right where you're at. And he will miraculously and instantly put you on the right side. And then he'll keep working it out in the meantime. The invitation and decision is ours.